You won't soon forget a visit to one of Florida Springs. I was introduced to them early on in my residence here, and they have certainly shaped my ideas about the state in the decades since. In a way, this was the effect developers, chambers of commerce, and various hucksters and salesmen were hoping the spring waters would have on out-of-staters. The marketing of Florida Springs has a long and mostly ignoble history. Today I'm joined by Rick Kilby, author of the 2013 book Finding the Fountain of Youth and the 2020 volume Florida's Healing Waters to discuss this history and what the future of these precious natural resources might look like. I apologize to listeners in advance for botching the title of Finding the Fountain of Youth. You'll hear me rebuked for it in this episode. I'm Christopher Nank, and welcome to the Florida Book Club. I'm here with Rick Kilby, author of Florida's Healing Waters and In Search of the Fountain of Youth, which we'll discuss in some detail today. So welcome to the Florida Book Club, Rick. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Okay. Now, I was going to start by saying I loved Itchituckney Springs the very first time I went there. The summer that I moved to Florida, I, I was just, I was missing my family in Ohio and it was just so oppressively hot and humid. And I'm telling you, Going tubing down there, it was just cathartic. I mean, I thought that at the time when I was in my early 20s and just all of the stresses I had washed away. And, you know, I've returned there to, to snorkel near the blue hole. That's for people who've been there, you might know where that is. It's uh, it's just beautiful. And it, it's I feel like as as you imply in these books that, you know, people have this perception that the springs are good for them in some way, spiritual or physical. But you also state that maybe, you know, we aren't the best thing for these springs, though, either in some ways, that um, in both of the books, I love the caveat that this was, you were not just making a documentary of how the, the, the springs were popularized for tourism, but it's also an ecological warning in some ways. Um, and um, I, I'm kind of curious, like how so, or, or in what way do you think you know, the human presence here has in, in, at these springs has has maybe had a detrimental effect or maybe what we could do to um, mitigate our effects on them while still enjoying them. The, the big irony is that, you know, throughout Florida's history, they've used the springs and, and all, of, all of the water of the state to lure people down. And, you know, that whole notion of you know, Florida is a place where you can reboot your, your whole life. It's a tabula rasa. You know, you can find the fountain of youth here has been used, you know, at least for 150 years to entice people to come here. And, and the irony is that it's all the people here using all the water from the aquifer, which has really hurt the springs mm -hmm. because we it's if you look, think about it as a giant big gulp, there are too many straws in the giant big gulp and there's <laughs> like less there's less water, you know, coming up in our springs. And when there's less water, it's easier for algae to accumulate because there's less um, water pressure and current washing it down the stream. And, it, you know, it's kind of a, a, a ripple effect. You know, there's less water and there's more people fertilizing their lawns and there's more agriculture in North Florida. And, you know, the more growth we've had in Florida, the less healthy the springs are, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I also was curious in some ways if just the raw numbers of people visiting the springs have any uh, effect on because, you, you know, you talk about and I've been to some of these places like the lodge at, at Wakulla Springs in North Florida or, um, you know, uh, outside Itchituckney, you know, uh, in central Florida, where I was discussing earlier, 
you know, there's a whole infrastructure of businesses renting tubes and stuff. And I mean, I, um, I, I mean, I wondered that that was one thing too, is just, you know, that, that just the, the presence of people swimming or, 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 you know, littering there, because one of the things that I, I um, took away from reading the books where, where you talk about the transition from the springs being construed as spas to healing waters to tourist attractions or state parks is that I, as a yearly state park pass holder, I know this is sort of a convoluted question, but um, I have always had faith in the state park service as stewards of, of the land and the environment. Now I know there's only, they can't control agricultural runoff or, or, you know, the depletion of the aquifer, but do you feel like the springs themselves as attractions are in pretty good hands though, as far as that goes? They're not all state parks. A good number of them are. A lot of the first magnitude springs, which are the ones with the most flow are state parks. Some are county parks and some are privately owned. And there is a danger of people loving them to death. There, since underwater photography has become so easy, you know, you can buy a point and shoot underwater camera for practically nothing. Everybody wants to get great underwater springs photos. And I think that's kind of led to a rediscovery of our springs. And the, the big danger is that people trample all the um, underwater plants. And that's, there's, you know, this whole ecosystem under the water at our springs. And if you destroy the plants, then nothing can grow there. You know, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. If there's too many people trampling on the plants, they can't grow. And if there's too much algae covering the surface of the plants, they can't grow. So it's a double whammy in some cases. And that there is a real risk of that. Uh, I would say the state, the park service does a good job, but it's higher up. It's the environmental agencies that don't do a good job. There are laws on the book that should protect our springs better, but they are not enforced properly. And so a great example is Jenny Springs in North Florida. There is a water permit for Nestle to uh, get more bottled water from Jenny Springs. And there was huge opposition to it, yet it was approved. And basically you pay for the price of the permit and you don't have to pay anything for the water. And it's the same mm. water that comes up in the springs that supplies the Santa Fe River. And you know it's a trickle down effect. If there's less, more water being used for bottled water, there's less water coming out of the springs and less water in the river. So every, every part of that environmental chain is you know, hurt by the water bottling permit being approved. Yeah, I say, thank you. That was a great answer. The, um, the other thing you mentioned in Florida's Healing Waters, I, I really liked this. You, you termed it the Bartram effect of uh, William Bartram, uh, the, the naturalist who uh, explored Florida and the Carolinas in um, the late 1700s. Which, Travels is a great book, by the way, too. That's a, that's a great ecological document in its own right. But it was interesting how you alluded to the fact that of the trail being popular is the Bartram Trail, where you can kind of see some of the places he went, that that also, you know, despite, you know, putting us kind of in touch with a, a good piece of Florida's history and then its heritage and its exploration by, you know, Europeans anyway, you know, it also has the risk of, of like you're saying, of, of, you know, leading to some of these areas being loved to death, <laughs> as you've seen, as, as, you know, it draws people in or, or does um, attract more visitors in some ways. So, uh. yeah, I, I, my whole thesis is that the Spanish really didn't care about people coming to Florida. For them, Florida was strategic and it was the British that really encouraged colonization and 
you know, later kind of set the groundwork for tourism. And Bartram was the one because he influenced so many naturalists who came to Florida afterwards, including Audubon. He kind of set that in motion. And, you know, environmentalists today still travel with Bartram because they find it poetry. And so they're, mm -hmm. They love the poetry of the language, I should say. There is a, a festival they have in Palaka every year to celebrate Bartram. And one of the things they do is they kayak and canoe to places that Bartram landed. And then they read the passage in Bartram's own words because he's revered in a lot of ways. And I, I love his writing because to me, it reads like poetry more than a travelogue. And, you know, he had a great influence, not just on the naturalists that came to Florida, but to the um, romantic writers of England. Yeah. At the Coleridge, time. I know, in particular. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And he wrote Kubla Khan and he, you know, basically used his, Bartram's description of a Florida spring as, you know, the cavernous. Oh, I can't remember the I used to. Um, Alf, the sacred river ran something like that. And, and that is based on Bartram's passage in travels. Yeah. I, I tell you, I was inspired to get my first park pass by reading <laughs> some of uh, those passages uh, in cool. there, which, which are great. I mean, just these, these odes to the rivers in South Georgia, like the Alatamaha Lake that he, he has in there. Yeah. It's, it's great. And landscapes that you wouldn't see anymore either. So they're, uh, it's it's great, and I, I think you know he. It's it's also possible that I, I um one of the episodes I did at the end of last season was talking about how Bart the Bartram effect has also I think led to the fetishization in some ways of Florida wildlife. He has all those passages about alligators breathing smoke and roaring and attacking him, and I was saying you can see that heritage in horror films all the way down to the present, you know, more or less, like the way in which he. Uh, kind of embellished and romanticized some of this. So yeah, I think you see that in other areas too, besides just- That's an interesting concept. And, and you know, he did illustrations too, because mm -hmm. he has that wonderful illustration of the alligator that does look like a dragon more than an actual yeah, I alligator. Dinosaur, I think was the word I used, but yeah, yeah, essentially. <laughs> but it's interesting too, you know, a lot of my book, the, the latest book, Florida's Healing Waters, talks about, you know, these tourists who came down and, and were on steamboats. And one of the things they loved to do from the deck of the boat was just shoot alligators for no rhyme or reason other than just to shoot them. It's like shooting logs, basically. And I was at the at the Enterprise Museum, which is a small town on the north shore of Lake Monroe on the St. John's River. And there was a famous resort there called the Brock House, and they had a hunting log. And I was looking at it this weekend, and everything... All the listings were shot one alligator, shot one alligator. So most of the things that they were shooting was alligators. And it was there was one passage that I read in one of the travel logs that talked about when they got to the North Shore of Lake Monroe, it, it appeared to be an alligator nursery, and they thought they could literally walk across the water on the backs of the alligators oh, and get from the boat to the shore. But of course, when you shoot them in such large numbers, you're going to quickly deplete their numbers. And I think that's what they did in, in some cases. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you saw that all the way through the 20th century with with the numbers of alligators. Um, to focus on on the uh, in search of the fountain of youth, I one of the things I was really amazed at that that was sort of a you know um, a, a discovery for me really was the, how many things uh, Juan Ponce de Leon's image was attached to, and and how uh, that legend was used to market and promote you know all of these aspects of the state. 
And like you said, he's not as associated with the invasive or genocidal legacies of exploration as like Cortez or Columbus or something, but it's like, he seems like he's kind of gotten pulled into that backlash against a lot of European colonizers. But I mean, in, back in the day though, like in, in these eras, what kind of gravitas or legitimacy did, did marketers think this imagery might give you know, these ads to promote them that way? Like, was there some kind of dignity or prestige associated with the conquistadors or with, you know, Ponce de Leon himself? So first I need to correct you. It's finding the fountain of youth. Oh, jeez. In search of the fountain of youth makes me think Leonard Nimoy. I know, I know. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That old, yeah, I remember that show when I was there. I, you know, I, I've been thinking about how, in Florida, when it was promoted early in the 20th century, how promoters were pulled to the ro- the notion of romance of Spain. And, you know, even earlier in the late 19th century, you know, Henry Flagler built these resorts that, you know, were mm-hmm. kind of Moorish in their influence and kind of uh, Mediterranean style architecture. And then, you know, the whole Mediterranean revival you, you know, you find it everywhere in Florida. And I think, I think that's it, that, you know, there was this idea of Florida as, as it's an idea, you know, and the, the foundation myth of the idea is find the fountain of youth in Ponce de Leon's search for it. And it's romance. And, you know, it, it's this thing that you can have. You're up north, it's winter. There's always that idea of Florida and it's romantic and it's sexy and you've got to have it. And, you know, the personification of it, of course, is Ponce de Leon. I always joke he was the first Florida man. And, (laughs) you know, I think they did not have that awareness of some of the you know, some of the dark side of what the conquistadors did. They may have, you know, historians may have known about it, but promoters certainly certainly didn't want to shed a light on it. And again, there's a lot of things in Florida they didn't want to shed a light on. The fact that when Florida became a state, there was as many enslaved people in the state or, or, or African-Americans or, or in living in the state as there were white people. And, you know, we were a slave state and nobody wants to talk about that when they're promoting Florida as this wonderful paradise. They wanna go back to the romance of Spain. And I think that has a lot to do with it. And the other thing is if you use Ponce de Leon as your celebrity endorser, you don't have to pay him any royalties either because <laughs> <laughs> he's long gone. <laughs> One of the things that I thought was funny is that, though, in spite of all the this mythology about the Fountain of Youth, and and as you say, it is a myth, mostly, like it was probably not something that Ponce de Leon really cared about in, in any tangible way, was that the discovery of the Gulf Stream was actually a much more important and significant, uh, uh, you know, achievement. And that's almost like, I, I would admit to myself, I don't really even associate that with any of the Spanish explorers, but I know the Fountain of Youth myth, so... It was very important to the Spanish. You know, they used the Gulf Stream to get back to Spain. They, they rode it back. And why Florida was important was to protect their fleet from the British and all those other people, you know, the pirates who would try to, you know, capture the silver and the gold that they got in their colonies of Spain and, and South America. So they hugged the coast and Florida would, would try try to use Florida to protect their fleets riding the Gulf Streams, you know, up to the top of North America and then back down. 
So it was critically important. And, you know, he also discovered some other things. He discovered Cape Canaveral. He discovered the dry Tortugas. You know, he landed. They think he landed in, in Charlotte Harbor. It may have been actually Tampa Bay. There's a new theory that he perhaps landed in Tampa Bay and that the Indians who actually wounded him fatally were not actually the Calusa of Charlotte Harbor, but they were the Native Americans that were living in Tampa Bay at that time, which I'm not sure if those were the Calusa or not. But, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is there is no archaeological evidence of Ponce de Leon in Florida. Like we've never discovered, you know, a sword or any kind of Spanish oh. relic from him being here. So we don't know exactly where he landed. You know, I saw something on Facebook where people were talking about him landing in St. Augustine. We don't know for a fact that he landed in St. Augustine. Melbourne claims that he landed there. Ponte Vedra claims that he landed there. And we don't know where he was fatally wounded. Historically, they've always thought it was Charlotte Harbor because the descriptive passages match the geography there so well, but it could easily have been Tampa Bay. Mm, yeah. <laughs> It's strange, yeah. The, the the historical record keeping and and narratives are as as I tell my students. The farther away from an event you get, in any case, I mean, the greater it becomes like a game of telephone, you know, where you keep key things get passed down. Yeah, there. Do you know uh, J. Michael Francis? He's at USF. He's the um, big authority on Spanish colonial Florida. He goes. He takes students over to the archives of Spain, and he his holy grail is a first person account from Ponce de Leon's journey to Florida because everything we have is like, like you said, it's like second or third or fourth person. We know for a fact there would have been, or at least according to J. Michael Francis, there would have been three first person accounts, but we've never found them. And he believes, you know, they're somewhere in an archive in Spain and he keeps searching and searching and searching trying to find it because then we can get to the bottom of a lot of a lot of the mysteries like the fountain of youth which most historians believe was attached to him long after he de his death and he was never really searching for the fountain of youth yeah i think that that's awesome that uh, you know uh, to to engage students in that way because um, one of the points that you make towards the end of finding the fountain of youth, which I, uh, which is sort of connected to this, is that you point out that Florida's ecological future may be determined by how connected people feel to this state and how you know how much of its history and heritage they adopt. You know, and and because most most of today's Floridians, I think this is probably still true, were raised elsewhere, and they need you know if they're not going to embrace their adopted state. I mean, I, I think that this extends far beyond environmental concerns to um, funding schools, social safety nets, voting. I mean, it's like you know that that's one of the problems of being a state of transplants and and change. I I was um curious though. I mean, how dangerous do you think that type of mindset might be towards environmental issues in particular? And do you think that that's improved any or changed since 2013 when you first published the book? Because uh, our new newish governor uh, at least seemed at first like he was interested in, in you know, leaving a, this ecological legacy that his predecessor uh, had no interest in. So uh, I, I was wondering, like, if your uh, thoughts about our, our state's ecological awareness I mean, do, do you think that that's improved any? I think there have been, they have been gains. I think there's a lot more awareness of the danger we're in right now. You know, the sad thing is, you know, the legislature will 
do something and they'll name it like the clean water bill and it won't really do anything to make a significant difference in terms of our springs but you know what i have that name and everybody thinks you know, they can go back on the campaign and say we passed the green wall clean water bill so in some ways all that awareness is is kind of hurt in a strange way because people know about it and politicians can use it to run you know i, I think our current governor is a great example you know he championed the everglades and you know, like he was going to be the big savior of the everglades and really hasn't done that much to, to save the everglades in fact they just approved this road that's actually going to hurt the Everglades. So I think he sees it as a political opportunity more than anything. You know, I think the common person has more awareness of the danger of our water, but I don't think the average person will act to vote differently until they are forced to pay for their water. You know, you know, we're all having to go someplace and fill jugs up or, you know, the water from our tap is, is dangerous to drink. That's what it's going to take, I'm afraid, because, you know, it's, it's such a weird time politically where you'll vote for people just because the letter behind their name, not because it's good for the state, you know, and it's really, really sad. And we keep electing people who are doing the things that hurt the state in the long run. And I, you know, I've lived here since 1966. I think the quality of life here is actually diminishing. And, the, you know, the, the positive side is, you know, there was a big push for land preservation and they had this Florida Forever fund and then they cut the funding of it way back. They have renewed the funding. And so there is more land being uh, preserved in order, you know, the whole Florida wildlife corridor where we're trying to maintain these big swaths of land to protect the wildlife. But at the same time, any kind of local growth ordinances to protect uh, development from running wild have been just ripped away and development is running amok. So we are saving some parts of land because we are growing and developing at such a rapid rate that, you know, if we don't save these little parcels of land, they're going to be paved over. And every time we pave over something, you know, in, a, in addition to losing, you know, the trees and the wildlife that are on the land, we are replacing it with, with, with asphalt and pavement and putting in a retention pond. So all the water and the rain that falls on that is being evaporated into, instead of soaking into the earth and recharging the aquifer. Yeah, it's, it's once again, sort of a wait and see, as, as always, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, will we see in time? I don't know. I, I'm, I, you know, it's it is very challenging to be an environmentalist in this state because there are very few wins. <laughs> it's so strange, just because as you and so many other authors and and people have have pointed out, I mean, our our identity and our commerce and everything depends so much on the environment and depends so much on climate and everything like that. It it, it seems counterintuitive. So yeah, I it, you know. The, uh, the story of Florida's healing waters is people seeing little bitty springs, you know, along the St. John's River or the Swanee River and seeing dollar signs. You know, they could be this little tiny hole in the ground and, you know, they build a big pool around it. And next thing you know, there's this big wooden spa because people want to take advantage of the natural resources that exist in the state. You know, there's this long tradition of healing waters going back to Europe, and people thought they could bring that here. So anytime they saw a spring and they could buy the land around the spring, they saw dollar signs, you know. So it's very much in line with the whole 
idea of development that still exists today, and it really goes back 150 years. On a more lighthearted note, I would say, hey. no, 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 this is this sort of wrap up. I'm curious, of all the visual treasures, those are your words, that these books contain, I want to say, which, which were some of your favorite images? I love the image that is on the cover of my latest book. And it's really cropped. The people bathing, yeah. The people bathing, because there's so much interesting stuff going on there. You know, there's ladies in the front, and they're holding on to a safety line. They would have these safety lines at the beach in, the, in Springs because a lot of people didn't know how to swim yet. So they're clinging to the safety line. Then there's this big giant, it looks like a giant piece of cypress going across with people sitting on it. And of course, the fat guys at the very end. Then there's <laughs> other people, you know, in their bonnets and their Sunday best in the back. There's a guy who looks like he's in his long johns sitting at the end of the other end of the diving board. There's a guy on an ox who looks like a tourist. There's a man holding a pistol in the air. And what's propped off is a guy holding a camera you know, doing this meta thing of taking a photograph of somebody taking a photograph. <laughs> so there's all that wonderful detail. And what's also interesting about it is it's not a spring that's developed where a lot of these had these beautiful Victorian wooden hotels right next to the spring. This one's out in the middle of the woods. So what you see beyond that is just this wonderful pristine woods. And if you go to the spring, it's orange springs. It's very much like that today. So there's a whole lot going on there. And I would I bought that image on eBay and was so happy to get it because it it is so it tells a story and it's my favorite by far. Okay. So any of our listeners, you can see that image on the cover of Florida's Healing Waters. So <laughs> just as a reminder. Yeah, I, I there was a photo in one of the books, I can't remember, of the dredging of Davis Islands uh, that I thought was, it, and yeah, it's like compared to some of the postcards, it's not nearly as melodramatic or zany, but I just, I thought just the starkness of watching how they were doing this, you know, it was sort of reminded me when you were talking about this image, just sort of the, uh, you know, the, the, the comparative simplicity of it. And the, and the other one I liked, um, I think it was the beginning of chapter three in Florida's Healing Waters. It was a postcard image of this steamboat on the Akwaha River that just looks completely primeval. And it reminded me of going on a boat tour down Wakulla, the Wakulla River, where the guy turned the engine off and you would have thought a dinosaur would come out of there. All you heard, you're so far away and all you hear are birds, crickets, frogs, and the sounds of the river. And it's like, you're so far from civilization. I kind of got that vibe from... Uh, from that illustration so anyway. that, that's that's really interesting because you know the thing to do w during the gilded age was you would start generally in jacksonville and we'd go up the st john's river and you would go to palaka get on a smaller river boat go up the wakawaha river to silver springs it, it was like disneyland you know your trip to florida was incomplete unless you you did that part oh, of the like journey. The boat from on, and, and everybody did it you know um harry beecher stowe sydney lanier Anybody who came to Florida had to do that or your trip was incomplete. And what you describe is what attracted them. To, to them, it was a sublime experience. And of course, they would be shooting alligators all, the whole time. <laughs> but there was also this religious pilgrimage kind of thing where you would go at night and it would be like um, almost like going through hell because they would have these blazing cauldron of pine on top of the boat and it would illuminate the sides of you know, all the trees and everything. And that's how you made your way. And there'd be alligator eyes gleaming. But in the morning, 
you know, everything would, and it was very narrow, you know, it was a twisty little river. And in the morning, you would wake up and you would be at Silver Springs. So, so everything opens up and you can see almost to eternity because the water is so clear. And it was very much akin to a religious experience for those people. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and relative to that, what's your favorite spring to visit? <laughs> you know, my, my pat answer used to be De Leon Springs mm-hmm. in Volusia County because I love the history there. But we've started to the realize the pan- and the pancakes <laughs> are awesome. But we've started to realize the history there is not told. It's not interpreted very well because there were three plantations there and at least 200 enslaved people there. And that's an important part of the story that really needs they need to shine a light on it better, but not celebrate it. But, you know, try try and come to terms with that. So I think now my answer would be Green Springs in the, the small town of Enterprise, and it's a Volusia County Park because it is it is like looking into liquid jade. It mm. is this weird color, and if the the um, atmosphere changes, it changes colors maybe from jade to more sapphire. So sometimes it's really green, and sometimes it's really blue, and it's opaque. And there's this wonderful live oak tree that goes right across it. So you can't take a bad picture there. It's so picturesque. <laughs> and I, I go out of my way to stop there just to take a picture every time in, in that part of the country. And people swim there even though you're not supposed to. There's wonderful history there that's documented in the interpretive signage. And it's not known about by very many people. And I, I love that place because it's off the beaten path. And it is there is something mysterious about it that I love. Yeah, I'm filing that one away. I've never been to Green Springs, so <laughs> let me know. I can. There's a lot of great things to see in Belusia County. I I am leading the charge of their eco heritage tourism because there's so much to do there. Yeah, Blue Spring, I believe, is there too. I've gone to see the manatees there, and uh, and that is some, I love that state park too. So both great, great things. I love the archaeology. You know, the the story of that totem that they found there. Oh, yeah, Hantu <laughs> Island is so incredible, and there's still a shell mound. And Blue Springs with the manatees, it's its a must-see in, in winter in Florida, I think. Yeah, it's been a while since I've been there. My parents used to stay in DeLand for like six oh. years in the winter. So yeah, I was i was up there a lot. So uh, it's, um, yeah, I miss that actually. <laughs> Reason to go on to the other side, the other coast, I guess. All right. Well, Rick Kilby, thank you for joining us. Do you have any uh, any projects in the works now that... Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm stewing over some stuff. I've been investigating the history of Florida sugar bells because of their connection to slavery that's not been known about. And the other thing that has intrigued me is all the sugar mills, you know, in Volusia County that were built originally during the English period and then in the early uh, territorial period were destroyed by the Seminoles. And it's, it's taught as uh, the, the Seminole, uh, Seminole War event, but really... What historians are starting to realize today is it was the largest slave uprising in United States history because all these enslaved people working at these sugar mills rose up against their owners and joined with the Seminoles. And there's so much rich history there. I'm starting to try to investigate the ways that certain aspects of the state have been promoted, like you know, sunshine and flamingos and all these things. And other parts were uh, given the opposite uh, 
approach where we didn't want to shine a light on the unattractive aspects of the history. But there's contradictions as well. There was a, uh, an attraction in Brooksville called uh, the Lewis Plantation that mm -hmm. were, were actual enslaved people acting like they were on a plantation. And it was popular until the 1950s. So people could go and experience what it would be like to be on a plantation with real slaves. Right by Wikiwachi. And it's bizarre as hell, but so it's Florida. <laughs> yeah. that, on that note, yeah, bizarre as hell. That's that's uh, good way. Florida. All right. Well, Rick Kilby, thank you for coming on. You are now a member of the Florida Book Club. Woo! <laughs> Thanks for attending this meeting of the Florida Book Club. There are links to purchase both Finding the Fountain of Youth and Florida's Healing Waters on our website, as well as a link to Florida's Department of Environmental Springs Protection and Information page. Remember to support your local independent bookstores and public libraries. See you at our next meeting.